Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 1, the Bible said, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces with him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. If I shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... Well, I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as I bow before you today, I do thank you for your precious word and for another opportunity that you've given this side of eternity that I might stand and minister the Word of God. And Lord, I recognize my own limitations, my own inability, and I pray, O oh God, that you would fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. May I say exactly what needs to be said today. May we see the Lord Jesus. May He get the honor. I pray you'd speak to every heart, save that one that's lost without God, and revive the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to bring you a message on this thought, He took my place. Isaiah 53 here is, is one of the uh, clearest Old Testament scriptures relating to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. The whole, uh, you know, the whole foundation of Christianity is based on a substitute. You know, I think if, uh, if folks could ever understand that, then it'd be much easier to reach them for Christ. Uh, the average mind does not comprehend uh, the truth of substitution. They think, well, if, if I try, you know, if I put forth an effort, I know I'm not perfect, but if I, 
if I really put forth an effort and try, uh, then, then I think I'll be all right. But you see, God can't do that. For God to do that, he would have to violate his, his word. He would have to violate his very nature. And God cannot, God will not do that. The only claim that I have to heaven is on the basis of substitution that somebody took my place. Because we're all sinners, we're all under the sentence of death, the wages of sin is death, and that is a fact. And the only way that you and I can escape death is for somebody to become a substitute and take that death sentence for us. Now that's, that's the whole foundation of, uh, of Christianity and salvation, and it's a truth that many do not understand. But I'm glad that uh, Jesus Christ became our substitute, and he took our penalty and our sin, and he took this on the cross. He took my place on Calvary. There is where sin was judged, as we see here in verse 4 through 6. Let's look at it again. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now these verses are clear that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. He paid our sin debt. Now God must judge sin. Uh, God will judge all sin. All sin absolutely must be judged. Nobody will ever commit a sin and it not be judged. That is a biblical fact. Either God will judge us or God will judge someone in our place. He'll judge our substitute. And the Bible says here, Isaiah is preaching here, that, uh, that God has provided a substitute in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ. In verse 10, the Bible said it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now think of that. When, when God the Father looked down on that awful crucifixion scene, the Bible said it pleased the Lord. That Calvary pleased the Lord because of what was going to be accomplished by it. And in verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Aren't you glad of that? God, the offering of Jesus Christ, satisfied the justice of God. The demand for justice, the demand for that sin be judged and be paid for, when, when God the Father looked at his son on the cross he saw that suffering, and he was satisfied with the offering. Now, 
you know, the Lord can look at all of our goodness and all of our, our efforts, uh, you know, uh, all of our self-effort, but it'll never satisfy him as a payment for sin. But Calvary satisfied the Lord Jesus. I was reading this story about a captain by the name of, uh, of uh, John Counts, the sea captain. And uh, he was out, out in the ocean there and uh, became deathly ill and, and uh, did die, in fact. But the man was a wicked man, a vile man, and, and he called for his first mate. His name was Williams. And uh, he told him, he said, Williams, pray for me. He said, I would if I could, but I cannot. I don't know how to pray for you. He said, well, do you have a Bible? He said, no, I don't have a Bible. So he sent for his second mate, whose name was, uh, was Thomas. And he brought Thomas in, and he said, Thomas, would you pray for me? He said, I haven't prayed since I was a child. I don't know how to pray. He said, do you have a Bible? No, does anyone have a Bible? And they finally found the boy of the cook who they believed that had a Bible, and he was brought in, a young lad, and his name was Willie Platt. And uh, he said, uh, he said, do you have a, a Bible? He said, yes, I have a Bible. He said, well, read something to me. I'm dying. I need, I need something uh, about uh, uh, God having mercy on a sinner like me. And uh, the young boy didn't hardly what to read. And, but he remembered his mother had read to him this scripture in Isaiah 53. And so he took this scripture and he be, began to read this scripture to the dying sea captain. And when he got down to verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He said, wait a Minute son said, Read that verse again. And so he read it again. He said, uh, Let me read it to you like my mother taught me. And uh, he began to put his name in there. Uh, in in verse, verse 5, I'm sorry, was the verse he used. Uh, he was wounded for Willie Platt's transgression. He was bruised for Willie Plant's iniquities. The chastisement of Willie Plant's peace was upon him, and with his stripes, Willie Plant is healed. And before he got through reading, the captain was leaning over his bed and said, Son, put John Count's name in there. Put my name in there. And so he read it again with John Count's name in there, and he was gloriously saved in his dying moments there. That's, that's what substitution is about. That's what it means for someone to die in our place. So it was on Calvary that our sin was judged. It was on Calvary that the blood payment was made. Jesus died. A lot of people died. There were two that died with him. There was a thief on either side, but they cannot offer salvation, can they? He not only had to die, but he had to offer the payment for sin, which was his blood. In Leviticus 17, 11, he said, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement 
for the soul. And in Hebrews 9.22, he said, Without shedding of blood is no remission. Life is in the blood. This is a, a medical fact as far as their physical bodies are concerned. You take, uh, you take the blood out and, and you're dead. Do you realize you can live a very short time without a heart? In fact, the, you know, they experimented some years ago and, and they took a man's heart out and put a mechanical heart in and he lived for a short time. You could possibly live without a physical heart or they can transplant hearts and all. The life is not in the heart. You know, when the Bible talks about the heart, he's not talking about the organ that pumps the blood. He's talking about the inner man, the soul and spirit of man. And, uh, but the life is in the blood and that's where the poison of sin and death is in every one of us. And there's where the problem is. So that's why that Jesus Christ came and offered his blood as an eternal offering, his blood was pure blood, unpolluted blood, eternal blood. And when he died on the cross, he shed his blood. And the soldier put the spear on his side and the blood and the water came out. But you know, if you go to Israel and if Sinus would, uh, would take uh, uh, all the area where he was crucified, they would not find one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, the blood run out on the ground. But there's no blood there because that blood was supernaturally taken by Jesus Christ himself into the heavenly tabernacle according to the book of Hebrews and it is there as an eternal offering for the sin of man. And when I came and, and uh, received the gift of salvation, that blood... In heaven, in the blood bank of heaven, as it's been called, was the payment for my sin. And so on Calvary, the blood payment was made for all the sins of the world. And everybody that goes to hell will go to hell with their sin, the payment for their sin in the bank, so to speak. Think of that. I heard some time years ago about this this individual had died and and they had uh, uh, you know they had uh, uh, been out on the street a homeless person and lived on the street and and uh, they had they had died in rags and and uh, after their death they began to examine and and this particular individual had a bank account with over a hundred thousand dollars in it and they were living like a bum on the street. And there's multitudes that will die and go to hell with a payment in the bank, the money in the bank of heaven for their sin. And they'll die and go to hell with a payment there for their sin. Does that make sense? Dying and going to hell doesn't make any sense at all to me. When a man can be saved, he can, he can have eternal life. He can have all the promises of a glorified body and the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and, and all these glorious things just for free, just for the taking. You know, I think it's hard, to, hard for us to comprehend the, uh, the wickedness of the human heart. That man and his, it's hard to understand the rebellious nature that man is such a rebel at heart against God 
that basically what he's saying is, Jesus, you, you needn't to have bothered. I'm not, I'm not going to take it. Just, uh, I don't want it. We want to go our own way, as verse 6 said. We have turned everyone to his own way. But blood payment was made there. And then the plan of redemption was provided. When Jesus said it's finished in John 19, 30, it was finished. The word redemption means to deliver by paying a price. There was no other way of salvation. There was no other way. Think of that. You think of the love that God had for you and I. He didn't have to do it. He could have sent Adam and Eve to hell and started over. But he had bound himself. The very nature of God would not allow that sea. And so he was willing. He was willing to take our place. He was willing to suffer our hell. He was willing to pay the price for our redemption. I think of the story of Boaz and Ruth there. Uh, we started our school back uh, this week. And uh, I was helping one of the, one of the students and uh, they were studying that about Boaz and Ruth. And uh, one of the questions was, uh, you know, why didn't Boaz, he was a kinsman redeemer, why did he not go ahead and redeem? What was one of the, the reasons he hesitated in redeeming Ruth immediately? And the answer was, if you'll study it there, is there was a kinsman near than he was, and he had the first right. But that, that kinsman that was near would not do the redemption. He would not redeem her. And Boaz said, I'll do it. Boaz is a wonderful type of Christ. And Boaz said, I'll redeem her. She was a Moabite after all. She was a heathen woman. She wasn't a Jewish woman. But Boaz loved her. <laughs> And that's what Jesus did. He loved us. And he was willing to redeem us with his own precious blood. He took my place on Calvary and all of that, but he took my place in the grave. The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, uh, that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The question is, what's the burial got to do with the gospel? I've got a message I, I preach on just that. I mean, what's, what's that got to do with, with the, the plan of redemption? After all, and he said it is finished, and he shed his blood. What was left to be done? Well, the resurrection was important, wasn't it? <laughs> what if he had stayed in the grave? Our sin was paid for, but he couldn't offer it to anybody because he's dead. We could, we, we could, never, we could never take advantage of it. It would be there. It'd be like, like the money's in the bank, but you can't get it. <laughs> so what good is it? It's there, but you can't get to it. But it's a resurrection. He died for our, he died for our fences. He was raised again for our justification. That. It could be applied that you can get hold of it. Now the Bible said here in Isaiah that he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He died innocent as far as his own sin. 
but he died with our sin. And so uh, he took my place in the grave. This, the, the, the burial is a picture of sin being taken away. In, in Hebrews 10, 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, it's a picture of sin being removed. Uh, you know, if a man is, commits a, a terrible crime, I heard this week, I uh, can't remember where he's at, Texas or somewhere, maybe somewhere else, they, they put a couple to death uh, for a heinous crime that they'd committed. Well, you know, once that person's dead, uh, the law is satisfied. The law is satisfied. And uh, if a week later they got out of the grave, or three days later they got out of the grave, the, the law couldn't go at them and say, Oh, here, here we come. Uh, you committed murder. I mean, if that man rose from the dead three days later, there would be absolutely nothing the law could do. Of course, none of them's risen as I know of. But there would be nothing the law could do, do against him. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He died for our sins. He paid for our sin. He took our sin away. He arose the third day. But he's, uh, you know, the law has nothing against him. And, of course, has nothing against us because he was representing us. Sin was taken away. It, it was illustrated in the Old Testament by, by the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. They had the goats there and... Uh, of course, he had to, to offer for his own sin, first of all. Then they had two goats, and he cast lots, and one of them was to die. And uh, the lot that, uh, you know, the, the goat that the lot fell on was killed, and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and behind the veil where the glory of God dwelt. And then the priest would come back out, and he would put his hands on the head of the live goat, and he would confess the sins of the nation on the head of that live goat. And then they'd take it out in the wilderness in a barren place and they'd let it, die, let it loose. And of course it was a death sentence. But it was a picture of our sin being taken away. Our sins are not covered. Uh, I don't like that a song that talks about our, uh, you know, our sins are uh, covered or whatever. Can't remember how it goes there. Our sins are not covered. Our sins are gone. <laughs> I like that. Uh, they're, they're removed, they're taken away. The blood of Christ has removed them. And that was the unique thing about the, the message of John the Baptist. When he presented the Lord Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Well, that was a new message. The Jews knew nothing about that. They knew something about sins being covered, sins being atoned for. Atonement means to cover. They understood atonement. But they didn't understand. Oh, you're telling me that sin will be taken away? No more, no more sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices, no more offerings. Sin's gone once and for all. Sin was taken away. Death was defeated. Death is not destroyed yet, as is very evident. But death was defeated. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. You know when death will end? Revelation 21 said there shall be no more death. Death will not be put away entirely until the end of the millennium. People will still die. There will, will be, won't be a lot of death in the millennium, but there will be some death according to Isaiah. But uh, uh, at the end of the thousand-year reign, there will be no more death. It's the last enemy that will be destroyed. 
Hebrews 2 talks about Jesus becoming our cup barrier. He tasted death for every man. Now the cup barrier, remember Nehemiah was a cup barrier? He was the most trusted man in all the kingdom. Because every, every bite of food the king ate, everything the king drank, the cup barrier tasted it first and sipped it first. And, of course, the whole idea was, how would you like to have been a cup bearer? I don't think I'd have relished that job too, too well. I mean, if there's poison in it, it'd kill him before the king ate of it or drank of it. And the Bible said that's what Jesus did. He tasted death for every man. And he's telling you and I, you know what he's saying there in Hebrews 2? He says there's nothing about death to bother you. Brother Bill's talking about you know, his salvation and how that uh, uh, removes a lot of the worry and the trouble and many of the things that, uh, that we fret over. We may, we may be troubled about it, but we needn't to be. We oughtn't to be. I'm talking about death itself. Uh, you know, the idea of leaving family and all that, I think, bothers Christian and non-Christian alike. But... Uh, uh, as far as death, he tasted death for every man. And there's nothing about death that, uh, that can bother you. Now, he's taken the sting out of it. And then also victory was proclaimed. When Jesus Christ came out of the grave, he had gained the victory in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is thy sting, O grave, where is thy victory? And that will be our testimony uh, when he comes in the rapture. In Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. I've read that scripture many, many times. But last night I began to think, uh, the keys of hell and death. You know, when Jesus Christ went to the heart of the earth where paradise was, there was paradise and then the torment part, that both located in the heart of the earth somewhere. And uh, uh, he, the Bible said he, he delivered cap, he, captive, captive, captivity captive there. And uh, uh, he unlocked paradise and moved it to heaven. But I think there's a greater meaning. He has the keys of death and hell. And I begin to think about that. You know, death may overtake this body, but I'm glad Jesus Christ has the key. Think of that. I mean, he can unlock it. He can, he can set, and that's exactly what he's promised to do. He can set a person free from death. Death may claim the body. It's like the person being thrown in, in, in the jail, but he's got the key. And he can let you out anytime he wants to. He has the key. And there's nothing the devil can do about it. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and I'm alive forevermore, and I have the key. See, he overcome death. And he has the key, the keys of death and hell. He let himself out, and he's going to let us out one day. Intercession and how we ought to uh, intercede 
and pray for others. That's what intercession means, praying for someone else. That's what Jesus does. Now, he took my place at the right hand of the Father. I have, in simple language that we can understand, I have an attorney in heaven representing me. Now, in our system of justice, uh, if you, uh, personally, I think there's too many lawyers in America. I think that's one of the problems. But uh, uh, in our system, if, you're, if you cannot afford a lawyer, then the, uh, the court will appoint you a lawyer, which means the rest of us pay for it. Uh, you know, all these handouts from the government and the state and whatever, uh, they come out of somebody's pocket, and after a while you begin to realize they're coming out of your pocket. But uh, uh, they will appoint you a lawyer to represent you. Well, aren't you glad we have uh, a heaven-appointed lawyer in heaven? And uh, he makes intercession for us. As Moses made intercession for Israel in Exodus 20, 19, uh, they, uh, Israel told Moses to speak for, to God for them lest they die. And, of course, on the high priest, we talked about that, uh, who represented the people, went behind the veil in their behalf. In Hebrews 9, 24, the Bible said uh, he appears in the presence of God for us. In Hebrews 7, 25, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And Hebrews 10, 12, he offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down on the right hand of God. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. And then listen to what he says. The man, Christ Jesus. You realize we have a man in heaven representing us? And he's there in our behalf. And we're accused by the devil Night and day, the Bible says, but we have someone pleading our case as these accusations are brought uh, against us. I was talking this week, this Michael Jackson thing, you know. Uh, I'm not going to say where he's guilty or innocent, but uh, uh, he's been guilty in my, in my book for a long time by the hellish music that he's been involved in and the lives, the millions of lives that he's wrecked and destroyed. Uh, but uh, anyway, the point is they were, uh, they were talking about accusations. If, if an accusation is made against you, uh, innocent or guilty, uh, the damage is done. And the devil's like that, you know. He accuses, he accuses the people of God. He accused Job there. He accuses, he accuses us day and night before the Father. But we have someone there to plead our case before the Father. We have an intercessor in heaven. Then he's gone to prepare us a city. John 17, 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And in John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. I preach Thursday night at the rest home, and I use that scripture. Heaven is a place. It's literal. And he's going to come back and get us one day. Does it make a lot of sense for him to prepare a place and then not come, not, uh, nobody live in it, build this magnificent city, and, uh, and then nobody live in it? And I can't understand these liberal modern preachers that don't believe in the literal coming of Christ. 
Why prepare a place if nobody's going to inhabit it? And then he said, I prepare a place for you. It's individualized. Everybody's matching in heaven won't look exactly the same. That's why it pays to serve God. You say, well, and listen, we don't earn our way there. We're going through the blood of Christ. But there's going to be rewards. And everybody's matching is not going to look, I don't believe, exactly the same. Because we're all individual. We're all the way God made us. We're all different. We have likes and dislikes in cars and houses and clothes and jobs. and We're all different, aren't we? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's individualized. And there's other scriptures, I believe, that bear that out. And then, thirdly, he's there to welcome us home. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death in Acts 7 and 56, said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Matthew 25, 21, he'll say, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. In 2 Peter 1, 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that must be like? Sometimes I try to picture in my mind that heavenly scene and the Lord's welcome home. It has to be wonderful. I close with this story today. A man by the name of John Griffith. His childhood ambition was to travel. But the Great Depression of 1929 crushed those ambitions and then they had the Dust Bowl. He lived in Oklahoma. And uh, so he took his wife and small boy and moved to Missouri. He got a job as a controller of the great railroad bridge that spanned the Mississippi River. It was his job to open the bridge for the ships and the barges to go through and then lower it for the trains to go across this bridge. One day, his... Uh, Eight-year-old boy, summer of 1937, he took his eight-year-old son, whose name was Greg, to work with him. And uh, around noontime, he raised the bridge for some ships to go through. He got his lunch and joined his son uh, for lunch there. And then he heard a train whistle in the distance. He looked at his watch and it was 107. The express for Memphis with 400 people on board and he had forgotten to lower the bridge. So he rushed to the controls to lower the bridge. And then he looked back where he'd been sitting with his son eating their lunch. And he saw that his son had fallen down into the gears that operated that huge bridge. Panic raced through his mind. There was no time to save his son and lower the bridge. What must I do? With tears streaming down his face, he pushed the controls and lowered the bridge. 
just as the bridge was locked in place, the train came roaring across. 400 people. He looked in the train, and they were reading their newspapers, sipping their coffee. And he screamed out and says, Don't you care? I sacrificed my son for you. But they didn't know, see. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. We were plunging into a Christless eternity. And the Son of God was sacrificed in our place. That's salvation. That's